Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Woodstock City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Woodstock City Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out about what's going on around Woodstock City Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. So last week, we kicked off a brand new series called The Human Condition. And uh, this series is, if you're human, okay, regardless of your faith background, the stage of life that you're in, your relationship status, uh, your income level, what your job is, your level of education, what your story is, who you are, whether you have faith or have no faith at all, if you're curious, just trying to figure things out. If you are human, that's the only prerequisite for this conversation to be helpful and even relatable. This conversation is for you. In our condition, by our condition, I mean the state within which we live operate and exist. And the human condition, the state in which you and I operate and exist, and the tension that we've kind of been unpacking last week and will continue to do so today, the human condition is living in the tension that exists between the gap that is who we want to be versus who we actually are. We've all felt this, right? The, the, the mother that we want to be, the dad we want to be, the spouse that we promised to be, the roommate that we assured we'd be, the boyfriend, girlfriend we really want to be, the Jesus follower we want to be versus the one that we actually are. That we've all felt this gap. We're keenly aware that this gap exists. And, and, and we said last week, one of the reasons why this conversation is so important is because those closest to you also feel this gap. In fact, in fact, those closest to you, those that you parent, those that you love, those that, you're, that, you, that you do life with, who you're married to, who you're in a relationship with, those that you lead at work, they actually feel the effects of this gap more than anybody else. And we want to talk about what it might look like to close that gap. Last week, we set up why that gap exists. I'm going to give you a little bit of a fresher to get us all on the same page. But ultimately, this gap This gap between who you want to be and who you actually are, how you want to live and how you actually live, that gap threatens to steal God's best for your life. And you might not be in a place where you are ready to say that there is a God that desires best for your life, but I just want you to know that there is. And and maybe if you could even just suspend all judgment and say, what if there was? And what if you really did desire best for me? That he didn't want anything from me as much as he wanted something for me. So the Apostle Paul, and we, we looked at this last week in Romans chapter 7, unpacks this tension perfectly. Like you never knew the Bible was so relatable. He says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. I do not understand what I do. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Literally what, how that reads is, what my life produces, I do not know. It doesn't make any sense to me. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate... I do. And so it's not even that, I, that he doesn't do what he wants to do. It goes a step further. Not only does he want to do what he doesn't, he actually does what he hates. And so for you and for me, it's not even that we just don't do what we want to do. We end up doing the things that we hate. It's a step further. We've all, we've all, we've all felt that. And the overarching principle that we looked at that the Apostle Paul kind of unpacks is that if we do what we do not want to do, if we end up doing what we hate, if we do what we do not want to do, We are admitting to ourselves that there is a better way. We're admitting to ourselves that there's a better way to life, that there's a better way to navigate life. There's a better 
way. And so the Apostle Paul, he unpacks this. And, and, and basically, if there's this divided eye, we talked about this last week, this divided eye, like the part of me that doesn't want to do it, but I do it anyway. I've got the desire to do this, but I end up doing this, this divided eye. Then there has to be another part of the equation. And the Apostle Paul tells us what the other part of the equation is. And he says this in verse 17. As it is, taking in all that we have taken in as I've worked through this, this divided eye, this internal conflict, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now, we said this, right? The apostle Paul isn't like ridding himself of all responsibility. Don't start using this as an excuse, right? For your spouse, your roommate. It's not my fault. Samer said it's sin. Sorry, you know? But he is giving us an important insight into the human condition, that all of us have a sin problem. We all have this sin nature. In fact, oftentimes when we think of sin, we think of sin as the verb. Here, I want you to think of sin as the noun, as an entity that wants to reign over your heart and wreak havoc over your life. That what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we all have this sin nature, the sin nature that wants to pull us and entice us to do things that we do not want to do. And even if you're not at a place where you're ready to say that sin is a thing or that you have a sin nature, even you, come on, even you, you felt this internal conflict where you even end up doing things or you're pulled by something inside of you to do what is even contrary to your own conscience. What is that? What do you call that? The apostle Paul tells us, that it's our sin nature, the noun. And what does our sin nature do? It pulls us towards sin, the verb. And how do we define sin? How do we define sin last week? We said this, that sin is anything that moves us inward towards self and away from God. Now that's what our sin nature wants. It's our natural tendency, our propensity to move inward toward self. And when you're pulled inward towards self and away from God, why do I love this definition of sin? Because it always leads to hurting others. It lines up with the New Testament ethic that Jesus preached that you cannot be okay with God if you do not love people. And so anything that pulls us towards self and away from God ultimately pulls us away from that center. And, and, and we said this, and then we're gonna pick up the conversation in part two, that, that you don't have a sin problem because you're bad. If you've had a church experience where all you heard was how bad you were and the person telling you was like self-righteous and they acted like they did not have a sin problem but you had one because you were bad, you weren't good enough, that's just messed up, that's wrong theology and I'm really, really bad that they told you. Here's what I want you to know is that you don't have a sin problem because you're bad. We, we all have a sin problem because we're human. And Paul gives us the good news, he said. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who delivers me, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He delivered us from this quandary that we were in, from this, from this ruler. And, and, and we talked about these M&Ms last week, and I'm sorry you have to stare at them all morning. I know it's torture. They are peanut M&Ms. That might help or hurt. But we said that all of us, these are all, all, the, all the humans, and, and here are the humans, and, and, and what the Apostle Paul told us is that all of us, all of us were born with a sin problem. We were, in a sense, in Adam. And, and we looked at the scripture last week, but just by way of review, we're not going to read it now, but um, Adam being the first human, 
in, in Genesis, and whether you believe Genesis was literally happened or whether you, be, whether you believe it was more of an allegorical to describe how sin entered into the world, Adam, as the, as the first human who we all theoretically, you know, metaphorically came from, as the first human, the head of humanity um, who sinned. And so because he sinned, sin came to all of us. We were all born relationally connected to the sin of Adam. And in Adam, again, no fault of your own, okay? Don't get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. It's Adam's fault, and I'm just telling you what Paul said, okay? But in Adam, in Adam, all of us born in Adam, in this state, sin rules and reigned. And and in Adam, we are relationally connected to his downfall and to his sin. And in Adam, we are separated from God, Because sin reigns. However, what we said was Jesus delivered us so that whenever you put your faith in Jesus, you are now in Christ, a relational term. You are now relationally connected to Jesus. That you didn't do anything to save yourself. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. He delivered us from the tyranny of sin so that we could live a new life with a new hope where sin no longer reigned, where sin no longer defined us, that our past no longer defined our future, that we have the capacity for a new life, that in Christ, not only because we're relationally connected to Jesus does that change our eternity, it also, and this is what I wanna get in today, it gives us a brand new capacity to live in the way of Jesus that leads to life. And here's the tension, and here's where we're going today. The power of sin over your life when you are in Christ is totally gone. The power of sin has been defeated. But it doesn't mean we get it right all the time, right? Because you're like, I thought my husband was in Christ. You know what I mean? Like, the power of sin has been defeated. However, just because you're in Christ, it doesn't mean that sin no longer has any influence to be able to entice you or to entice me. It has no power, but it doesn't mean that even though you're in Christ, it cannot influence. Um, I've made it no secret in messages past that I'm not the outdoorsy type of person. I don't like it, right? When I'm outside, I don't feel like I'm anywhere close to the top of the food chain. You know what I mean? Like I just, even spiders, they could get, they, they're smaller than me, but I feel like they're stronger than me. Do you know what I mean? And so I don't do the outdoors. I'd like to go look at outdoors and then come back inside. Do you know what I mean? Like the stars, beautiful, and then go to sleep in an air-conditioned room. You know, like that's Hotel in the Grand Canyon, like right there at it. That'd be awesome. That's, that's what I need. So um, I don't like the outdoors because um, I don't like creatures and, and critters and stuff that can bite me, snakes included, Okay. And so, um, but I, I'm a sucker for clickbait. You know, I don't know if you're like this, guys, like you send your guy friends really dumb videos um, and your wife's like, why are you watching this? Well, I got one of those um, a little while ago and the, the title was Decapitated Copperhead Bites Man. I was like, what? You know, <laughs> like Discovery Channel meets The Walking Dead, you know, zombies kind of thing. And so did it help me want to go outside? No, but I could not look away, right? And so... But it was fascinating, and, and the video didn't actually show the biting of the man, you know, like I said, clickbait. But it was unbelievable. It was, it was a decapitated copperhead. They, they, they decapitated it with a shuffle. But if you would like get close to it or you put up like a little stick to it, it still opened its mouth, and it was going to 
bite you. And so I immediately, I'm like Googling the science behind this. And it's pretty fascinating. I won't get into the details of it, but it has to do with snakes being cold-blooded. They get their heat from the outside. And so their brain can survive um, for a, up to hours after it's been decapitated because it need, doesn't need as much blood flow as warm-blooded animals. Look at that. I could work for National Geographic. And so, but the, the snake functionally has lost all of its power. It can't move. It can't lunge. It can't decide where it is going to go. It cannot control its body. Like it cannot come after you. However, if you're not careful, if you're not paying attention, it can still lead to a world of hurt. And the same is true for our sin nature. Even though we are in Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ. You're relationally connected to Jesus and sin no longer has power over you. It no longer reigns over you. It no longer defines you. However, if we are not careful and if we are not paying attention, it will influence us. It will continue to entice us and it will always do everything it can to pull you and I back inward and away from God. If we let it, it will have more power over us than it actually has. So the apostle Paul, we continue the conversation, Romans chapter six, verse six, he says this way, he says, for we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus, so that the body ruled by sin in Adam might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. He uses really strong language here, but to drive home the point that our old self, our old self was crucified with Christ. Our old self that was separated from God, our old self that was in Adam, our old self that had no hope, our old self that was ruled by sin, crucified, has lost its power. It's been decapitated. And so for you and for me, that this old self no longer has power over you. It's lost its power. That our connection that used to exist between us and the sin of Adam has been severed. It's been completely dissolved. No more ties. Because when you're in Christ, old self, meaning, okay, now there's a new self, a new self with new awareness. In Christ, watch this, we are under new management. The apostle Paul goes on, he goes, so now if, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, the resurrection, he cannot again die. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, Paul goes on. He died to sin once for all, meaning a one-time occurrence, but then for all, for all of you, for the world. But the life he lives, he now lives to God. So what Paul is doing here is he is making connection between what is true of Jesus and ultimately what is true of us because of Jesus. That when you are in Christ, when you are relationally connected to Jesus, this is so powerful, what is true of Jesus is true of us. He shares with us all that he accomplished. He's not selfish, right? He shares with us all that he accomplished in his victory, that our old self, it died with him, but our new self lives 
just like he does in the resurrection. That death and sin no longer have mastery over Jesus. He conquered sin and death when he rose from the grave. And so, as it is with us, sin and death also no longer have mastery over us either. That we, in Christ, relationally connected to Jesus, are included in his sin-conquering death, but also his life-giving Resurrection, And so you can see Paul here, he's making very clear, it no longer has power. It's, it's old, the old self is gone, okay? It's been crucified, it's been decapitated, it has no power over you. What's true of us is also true of Jesus. No longer does sin and death have mastery over him, so the life he lives, he now lives to God. He's building up this tension, and then he gets really, really practical in verse 11. He says, so in the same way, as it is true of Jesus, No longer mastered by sin and death, but the life he lives, he now lives to God. A brand new life in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word count, it's an accounting term. It means to determine by a mathematical process, to consider. What he's saying is, hey, do the math. Do the math. Given all that you know. Given all that Jesus has done, that in Christ, you're under a new master, a new Lord. You're under new management. You've been set free. In Christ, you are dead to sin, which means it has no power to you, over you. And you are instead alive to God, alive to his conviction, alive to the way that he wants you to live so that we can fight sin and ultimately experience his best for us. Count yourselves dead to sin, that sin speaks a language that too is dead to us. Consider it. Have that mindset. Have that attitude day in and day out. Don't forget it. So so, since that's true, therefore, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That word reign, it's a picture of a queen or a king ruling from a throne of authority. And so Paul is giving us this image. Hey, count yourselves dead to sin. We've gone over why that's true. We've gone over that new reality. So now, do not let it reign. When you let something do something, what's the implication? You hold the power. And the problem for so many of us is we too often let sin with its evil desires and intentions for you and for me, have free reign. I don't even let my four-year-old have free reign of the living room, you know? That would not go well. But we so often let sin have free reign over us, and that is dangerous. Sin shouldn't get a vote in how you choose to live and how you manage relationships. And how you handle conflict and what you look at and what you think about and what you do. And so what Paul is saying, it's decision time. Because you decide who reigns. This is the power of being in Christ. You and I get to decide who reigns. The problem is indecision is no decision. And for so many of us, watch this, we live in a place of indecision. That we've never emphatically, vocally, just decided 
I will not let sin reign in my body. I will not let sin reign in my life. For so, for far too many of us, Jesus followers, right? We just, okay, well, sin's just a part of the life and, and I'm not perfect and I'm never gonna be. That's true. We'll talk about that in just a second, okay? Um, but we've never put our stake in the ground and declared, no, 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 I'm not going to let sin reign. And we live in this world of indecision. Indecision is no decision. And watch this, no decision is a dangerous decision. In this matter, making no decision at all is actually a decision and it is a dangerous one. Why? Because if you and I don't decide who is going to reign, do you know what's going to happen? The natural tendencies is going to take over. If you and I don't decide who is going to reign, our natural bent towards sin, my natural bent towards self, towards selfishness, towards pride, toward doing whatever it is that I want to do for my own benefit, that is going to take over if I do not decide otherwise. He calls it our sin nature, that which is natural to us, not because you're bad, but because you're human. And so if we don't decide, that's just gonna naturally take over and that's dangerous. Why? Simple. Sin is a terrible Master, sin is a terrible master. Why? Quite simply, because sin will kill every good thing in your life. It's the nature of sin that kills things. Sin always has a plus one, whether you gave it one on the invitation or not. And it's death. And you and I, just the third wheel. Have you ever... Have you ever wondered why God hates sin so much? Maybe you you grew up in a church context where it was like, it's an offense against God, and so that means it's bad. And you know what? God is so big, and all that he's done for us, that wouldn't be enough. But it's bigger than that. It's better than that. The reason why God hates sin so much is because what good heavenly father would want his children to do things and partake in things that would kill his best for their lives? Have you ever stopped to consider The reason God hates so much, God hates sin so much, isn't because he's trying to keep something from you. He's not trying to rip you off. No, it's because he wants something for you. It's because he doesn't want sin to kill good things in your life. The more I follow Jesus, the more I realize I am so prone to miss this because I'm so prone to just want to be selfish and do what I want and get what I want. But I so often miss that God often wants more for me than I even want for myself. And there's a God that wants more for you than he wants for yourself, which is why he does not want you to let sin reign in your body, which is why he did everything he possibly could to make sure it couldn't. Now it's up to us to decide. Come on, you know this. You don't need me to tell you this. Nothing good, nothing good comes of your life because of your pride. You know this. Nothing good in your life is a result of your selfishness, your lust, your anger, your greed, or your lack of integrity. Well, no, you know this. Those things do nothing but kill intimacy. They kill relationships. They kill your influence. They kill trust. They kill the value that other people should have on their lives, their God-given intrinsic value. They erode our conscience. They kill our thinking. Come on, sin does nothing 
but kill good things in your life and in mine. And, and grace, grace exists for those of us that are in Christ. There is always grace. There is always forgiveness. But watch this. That doesn't mean there aren't natural consequences for our actions. And there is a God that wants to meet you with grace every step of the way, but it doesn't mean there are not natural consequences for the natural order of the world in which we live. And God doesn't want you to live with those natural consequences of our decisions. Sin will always overpromise and underdeliver, just like Taco Bell. <laughs> will always, always overpromise, but underdeliver. Like in that moment, it just feels harmless. It's just once. Nobody will find out. Feels good in the moment. We just want to win the argument. We just want to make a little bit more. This will, it's been a long week and, and this is just gonna help me forget just one night. I deserve that. It feels like getting that will be everything that you want. It's so enticing. And then, come on, in that moment after we're tempted, the flesh pulls us in towards self and then the regret hits, the, the pain hits the thing that died a little bit that day hits and you're empty. And in that moment, what the Apostle Paul wants you to remember and what I want you to remember is we get to decide. And sin is a terrible master. So he says it another way in verse 13. So because of that, look, do not offer do not offer, it's such strong language, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him, to God, as an instrument of righteousness. That word offer literally means to hand over, to hand over. Do you ever hand over your credit card to your teenager would you, would you hand over your kid to a, to a random stranger or your grandson or your nephew to a random stranger? Of course not. That sounds so silly. But come on. You and I, and I'm putting myself in this, too many days live where we're just like, you know what? Okay, I'm going to offer parts of me to this terrible master called sin. We do it all the time. Here you go, sin. You can, you can have my mouth for this conversation. Hey, sin here, you can, you can have my tongue, you can have my words. Hey, hey sin, here you go, you, you can have my eyes. Sin, you know what, you can have my hands. <clears throat> hey, sin, you can have my thumbs for this, for this comment war. You can, have my, you can have my thumbs for this text. Hey, hey, sin, you can have my mind. Hey, sin, here you go, here, you can, have my, you can have my thoughts, you can have my imagination. Hey, sin, you can even have my feet. Let's Come on, we, we do this all the time. I, I, I do this. We do this more than we'd even like to admit. See, Apostle Paul's like, come on, you get to decide. Don't just hand over parts of your body to this terrible master called sin. Instead, offer it up to God. Offer who you are to God as an instrument of 
Righteousness. What is righteousness? That's a big churchy word. In this context, here's what it means. Offer up the parts of your body to God so that you and I can engage in right living that leads, that brings good to people and ultimately glory to God. Offer up your body. Offer up your physical body to right living, to right living that brings good to people and ultimately glory to God. Because here's what's true. Here's what's true. Wickedness takes life. Righteousness gives life. It's the nature of sin. It's how it works. So you and I could spend our days engaging in things that seem harmless, but they're doing nothing but taking life. Or we can engage in a new way of living that God has opened the door for where we can give life. Here's a question that I want you to wrestle with. To whom will you devote your life? It's a question of devotion. To whom? To whom will you devote your life? Paul goes on and he concludes this, this passage of verses with this. He says, for sin shall no longer be your master. The word master translates as Lord for sin shall no longer be your master. For sin shall no longer be your Lord. And what I wanna do is I want us to proclaim that together this morning, whether you're in the room or you've been watching online. And, and, and I, 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 just a second, not yet. We're gonna, we're gonna say this out loud together, but I wanna give you a little bit of context why. First, one is really personal. When I was, it was my first year of seminary, and I heard Andy Stanley, who's our senior pastor, who's had a massive influence on my life, teach on this uh, collection of verses. And, and I was sitting in my apartment, my small little, I don't know, 250-square-foot apartment in seminary, um, watching Andy on my laptop. And he had this moment where we had the whole room stop and proclaim this audibly, out loud, together. And I'm really sitting there in my apartment by myself, and I, and I, and I said it. And it was so powerful and impactful for me. And in fact, I've even had moments in my life since then we're in a moment of temptation, I've literally said out loud, hey, sin, you are not my master. And then a cool little full circle moment. Um, last month, I was sitting down with my counselor and I forget how it, we, were, we were talking. One of, the, one of the things that we're working on with me here, but this is really vulnerable, right? Like, I can, here we go. Um, hope you come back. Um, but, but we were processing a fight that Julie and I had that weekend, and it was totally my fault. And, and we were talking about, hey, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Why did you react that way? Like, I'm so prone to just quickly reacting in anger. And I'm working on that, right? And, and, and he told me, he's like, well, hey, like, in that moment, what are you processing? Like, what are you thinking? I'm like, man, I'm, I'm like, I, I knew, like, I knew what I was about to say was wrong, but I, like, and I knew what I was feeling in the moment. I had that awareness, but I still did it. And so he told me, he's like, hey, maybe you, sh- you need to verbalize it sometimes. I was like, okay, well, tell me more. He's like, well, there's neurological studies that show whenever you think about something, your brain processes it one way. But when you audibly say it out loud, it goes through your ears and it gets processed in a different part of your brain. It gets processed in your prefrontal cortex, in your thinking brain. He said, so if you're in this moment where you want to get angry or something is frustrating you, say it out loud, literally process it, and your thinking brain will be able to process it differently, and you have a much higher likelihood of responding in a way that you might actually want to respond. And I'm like, this is amazing. And, and, and I actually literally told him about this sermon that I was thinking about preaching, you know, six weeks from now. And I'm like, this is amazing. Thank you. You just now give me clinical research for why we should do this as a church. And so here, here's what we're, we're going to do. In just a second, I want us to all to proclaim sin 
you are not my master. I mean, I, I remember, I still remember vividly. I can still hear Andy's voice. And now I'm talking to my counselor. And I've had moments in my life where I've literally said this in a moment. Okay, no, no, sin, uh-uh. Audibly, so that my thinking brain can process it. Sin, you are not my master. So we're, we're gonna say it on three. If you're at home, you can do it too. Are you ready? Ready on three. One, two, three. Sin, you are not my master. So one, one more time. That's so good. Ready? Sin, you are not my master. Now, I want you to say it like a whisper, like under your breath, almost to where you're saying it audibly, but maybe only the person next to you could hear it. Ready? Just real quiet. Sin, you are not my master. In moments of temptation, watch this. I want you to practice saying this out loud. And the reason why I had you practice it so softly is because it might be awkward at your cubicle work if somebody could hear you. <laughs> I want you to, to practice in a moment of temptation to, to, to say it, watch this, to allow your thinking brain that God created, to allow your thinking brain that Jesus delivered from the tyranny of sin to process what your flesh is trying to pull you to do and then to decide sin you don't reign to allow your prefrontal cortex that is no longer in Adam in any way to say, no, 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 no. You don't get a vote because there's a new way. I've got a new Lord. And in that moment, it is a reminder that your identity is not your sin, that sin is a different entity, that it's not God against you in that moment. It's you and God against your sin. It's a declaration that you identify more with God than you do with your sin. Sin, you are not my master. And he finishes this verse, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Summarize, the law required perfection, but grace creates space for progress. The law, we talked about this last week, the standard for Paul, the Mosaic law that he tried to live up to, the standard of God that he could not attain. It required perfection from humanity. And so Jesus came to live a perfect life so we didn't have to. We were stuck in Adam. We could never live our way out of it, earn our way out of it. So by God's grace, he lifted us out of it by putting our faith in Christ. The work he did, we can now live under grace. So the law, we're not under the law that God doesn't require perfection from us. But grace the grace that God is, we're under grace, the grace of God that forgives, the grace of God that redeems, the grace that we have because we're relationally connected to Jesus. Grace creates space for progress. Following Jesus and even fighting sin is never about perfection. Like we're still gonna get it wrong. You could take really, really good notes and we're still gonna mess it up. This isn't a journey of perfection. Following Jesus and fighting sin, it's a journey of progress. Sin has been defeated You and I get to decide who reigns. It no longer has power over us, but watch this. Progress in this area of your life and in mine will never happen without our own effort. The pursuit, again, Jesus, he's done all the heavy lifting. He's delivered us. He's delivered us. But the pursuit of experiencing God's best for your life and not letting sin reign exists in the realm of a beautiful balance of God's grace and our 
effort. Because you decide, and I decide. I love what Dallas Willard said about this beautiful equilibrium. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, but effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with the forgiveness of sins alone. No, no, we've been given a grace to put effort towards fighting our sin. I love this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning meaning we can never earn our way to God. We can never live in a way good enough for God to love us. That's already done. Jesus earned that for us. But grace is not opposed to effort. If anything, God's grace, he's delivered us, has opened the door for our effort in a brand new way. In fact, I make this really practical with this nifty little um, chart that we have here, okay? You've got no effort and effort. You've got no grace and grace. In the realm of no effort and no grace, you're left with hiding and shame. No one to forgive you and no progress making that gap smaller of our human condition. But living in a world of all effort and no grace, you get legalism and self-righteousness. Suddenly you're better than others and you don't even need God anymore. But in the realm of all grace and no effort, we're just unproductive and unfruitful. That gap never changes and we're not experiencing God's best. But in the realm of our effort, In God's grace, we're productive, we're fruitful, and we're able to experience God's best. So here, to our human condition, is the formula. You ready? Embrace grace, develop discipline. Embrace grace and put your own effort. Develop discipline. Embrace grace. Like when you fail, Understand that God forgives and you can get up and try again. You can keep going. Don't let perfectionism paralyze your faith. Like for some of you, you need to understand that a lack of grace has actually, um, a lack of grace in your own mind has actually made you not wanna try to fight this anymore because you've been so defeated that you don't feel like you can win. You need to understand God isn't requiring perfection. Embrace grace that says, I know you're gonna get it wrong, but you can keep going. It's okay, let's try again. For some of you embracing grace today, is taking a step towards Jesus and no longer being disconnected from him. Embracing grace is not letting the volume of shame be turned up so loud that you've forgotten the voice of God that says you are forgiven. Embrace grace, but also develop discipline. We've got to put forth our own effort And this could go all sorts of ways, but when you think about developing discipline, think of it in terms of activating the grace that God has given us. Come on, you know this. The best athletes are ones that combine their natural ability, and I know this very, very well personally. Um, Athletes combine their natural ability, undeserved grace, with rigorous training, discipline. This should be us, and there's so many ways this can play out, right? I mean, we could talk all day about this. Um, are, Are you spending personal time with God? Are you creating space to let him speak to your heart, to read the scriptures, to pray, to journal, sitting in silence and solitude for just a few minutes so you can reorient and renew and realign your head and your heart around the way that God wants you to live? Are there actual spiritual disciplines that are playing themselves out in your life? This can be real practical. Invite people to help you. Invite accountability into your life. Invite people who can give you wisdom into things that they've done. Like what is it like to develop discipline? Sometimes it's putting up boundaries and guardrails in our lives. Like not even giving sin a chance to reign over you. Like don't text or get on Facebook when you're angry. 
I mean, it's sometimes not that complicated. Um, for, for some of you, for some, for some of you, um, don't sleep with your phone and the world at your fingertips right there at night when you're most vulnerable. Why would you put it there? I need an alarm clock. Okay, I'm pretty sure Amazon just gives those away now. <laughs> Come on, guardrails and, and boundaries. Discipline, serve, forgive. Watch this, this might, you might not agree with me, but I, I, I agree with myself. Um, serve, give, and love even if you don't feel like it. Don't wait till you feel like it because you'll probably rarely ever feel like it. But, but no, serve and choose to forgive and, and love even when you don't feel like it. Practice, practice, practice. And this dance between embracing grace and developing discipline is when you and I will begin to really struggle with our sin. But struggling with sin is not a bad thing because the struggle is a sign that something is alive. If I could just be really honest, and, and I'm, I'm, I'll step on the toes of the Jesus follower. We talk all the time about struggling with sin, but you know a struggle assumes a back and forth. If we're just being honest, and I would put myself in this category, sometimes we don't struggle with sin, we just surrender to it. A struggle is a real back and forth. You win some, you lose some. You win some, you lose some. And you keep on going, embracing grace, developing discipline. Embracing grace, slowly gaining ground, developing new habits, developing discipline. The human condition, struggle shouldn't discourage you. Struggle should encourage you because the human condition is one of progress. And Jesus has freed us to make progress possible close with this. Um, there was this uh, restaurant that me and my wife tried about a year and a half ago. And uh, no, it was actually, it was right before COVID. Whenever that was, I can't remember, two years, I can't, these years are running together now. But it was right before COVID. And it was this farm to table restaurant. And I'm not opposed to farm to table. That's awesome. Okay. Just to be very clear. However, it was like too farm to table. We sat down. I've, this has never happened before. We sit down and we get the menu. And I'm like, babe, I am not, I, I, don't, I can't order any of this. And not because of allergies. I don't want it. And I'm certainly not paying a $30 premium because it's farm to table. You know what I mean? So we're sitting there and I'm like, I don't know what to do. She seated us. The, the waitress has brought us our, 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 you know, our, our waters with lemon. Like we're all set. And I'm like, babe, I can't do this. I'll go, what should we do? And she's like, well, let's just order an appetizer. And, you know, I was like, okay, fine. So we order an appetizer. I'm like, oh, man, I can't. I can't do this. I've never done this before. We order an appetizer. And we ask for a check. <laughs> Waitress was so confused. She's like, oh, do you want, you, are you ready to order? I'm like, no, we're actually so full. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, just a, just, a, just a check. Yeah, just put on one. Yeah, it's fine, you know. So we, we literally, we signed the check, you know, and, and, and we left. And we even had dinner somewhere else. <clears throat> um, but then, uh, you know, a little while later, we have some friends who wanted to go to dinner. And they're like, hey, we, we found this new farm to, to table place. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, gosh. And it's the same place. And they're so excited about it. And they're just like, hey, we, we, we've heard great things. Like, we would love to go there. Like, y'all want to come with us? And I'm like, no. You know, but I... They were so excited. I'm like, babe, I don't know. Let's eat beforehand. I don't know what to do here. <laughs> so we went. Same name, same front door, 
And we walk in, completely renovated. I'm like, I don't even recognize this place. It looks, it's a vibe. It looks cool. We go in and we sit down. Menu, totally different. I'm like, this is interesting. We order an appetizer. It's really good. And there's stuff on the actual menu that looks like normal food, you know? And so I asked the waitress, I'm like, hey, did this used to, was this like something different? And she's like, yeah, actually, you know, about a, about a year ago, new investors bought the place. Totally redid it. It's totally under new management. Here's what you need to understand. This restaurant, same name, same front door, same staff for some of them. Completely new insides, completely new vision, completely new direction, completely new life under new management. For you and for me, Jesus rescued us from our human condition. And watch this. In Christ, we are under new management, new lordship, Meaning the potential for new life. So the question that we have to wrestle with, to whom will you devote your life? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's delivered us Thank you that he saved us. And thank you that he has given us a brand new capacity for new life, new direction, new vision. And thank you that you don't hold us to perfection, but thank you that you've opened the door just for us to see progress. Pray you would give us the courage to answer that question. And I pray that we would all begin to embrace grace with the beautiful dance of developing discipline and watch you work. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.